All right. Well, hey, welcome. We are in part four of our series called The Core. Uh, if you haven't been here uh, for the earlier part of the series, I'll probably be repeating a lot. Actually, I've been repeating a lot during this series because I think it's a very strategic and important series for under- us to understand. We've been talking about the last three weeks about what is God's plan of salvation. How does God uh, save people? How does he redeem people? How does he justify people? And we started this series, I uh, said the reason we're starting it is because a lot of people simply don't know the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And a lot of people who have grown up in church, been raised in church, and they don't know God's plan to save the world. And that's kind of a bit of a problem. And one of the reasons that it's a problem uh, and uh, be able to share the gospel is that because we kind of grow up, especially in this West Michigan area, you find it a lot more in Bible Belt areas, where you assume everybody knows the gospel. You assume everybody God knows God's plan of salvation, so nobody ever really talks about it. And so the assumed gospel is a quiet gospel, and you see it play out in families where family members actually don't really talk about their faith. They might be committed to God, they love God, they go to church, they, they want to honor God, but they never talk about the influence that God has on their life. Even though they're committed, they don't talk about it. They kind of say stuff like, well, my faith is really personal, it's very private, so they never share their faith. Their faith never goes very public. And so as, as a result, the second generation grows up thinking, how you get saved is you just go to church and you're just a good person because nobody's ever shared with them the gospel message. So we've been talking the last four weeks about what is God's plan to save the world. We talked about core one, two, and three, and now we're on core four today. Of, and so I'm going to repeat a little bit about what we've been talking about just because I can't stress its importance enough that we, we need to be on the same page and we need to be, understand the gospel not only so we know it clearly for ourselves, but so that we can communicate the gospel effectively as well. And so today we're actually going to be talking about how does a person actually get saved? What happens when a person comes to the knowledge of God? What happens when a person gets saved? And it's a, you know, before we talk about jumping to the message, I just want to talk a little bit about how, you know, for some people, we even sang, talking about salvation, talking about getting saved, it can kind of be offensive to some people. Because the minute you say, has a person been saved, or uh, you're, you're bringing up the idea you got to be saved from something. So there must be a problem in somebody's life in order that they need to get saved. So a lot of people are, are offended when you talk about salvation, talking about the gospel, because how dare you project to them the idea that they need to be rescued from something or they need to be delivered from something. And, and that's where the gospel does get a little offensive at times to people, but you know, still, it is the good news of God, and it is the best uh, story that we could ever share with anybody. So I just want to talk about a little bit more about, you know, today, how can we be reconciled to God? That's the, our core four point today. How can we be re- reconciled to God through faith in Jesus? So for uh, the last few weeks, we've been talking about core one, two, and three. And, and I mentioned that understanding the gospel is kind of like putting a puzzle together. The best plan is to have somebody uh, sit down with you and show you all the pieces of the puzzle and explain how everything works together. But sometimes in this assumed gospel culture where we're not very verbal about the gospel, we just give people a few pieces of the puzzle and say, yeah, you kind of put that together. And what happens is you you have a puzzle that's missing a lot of pieces. 
And so what do people do? They naturally fill in those pieces with their own ideas, their own impressions, kind of what they think should be part of the gospel. And meanwhile, you get a watered-down gospel. You don't get something that's very accurate or truthful. So that's why we're taking the time to go through these four components of the gospel so we understand them well and we can communicate them well. So the first point was is that um, God is a holy, just, and gracious creator of all things. We talked about the fact that God is holy, and by being holy, there's no one else like him. By being holy, he is perfect, and he can do no wrong. And God, out of his love, created people with his hands, and he breathed life into them. And he said to Adam and Eve, I'm going to put you in a garden. I'm going to give you this beautiful garden. You can have a beautiful relationship with me. Enjoy yourself. Have fun. Enjoy your relationship with me. Just don't eat from this one tree. The one thing I'm asking you, just don't do that. He created us to be in a relationship with him. That's what our life is supposed to look like back in the garden. But we know what happened. Adam and Eve sinned. And we see that's our core, too, that we are each created by God, but we are all corrupted by sin. The Bible's clear that when Adam and Eve sinned, we all sinned, and sin entered the human race. The Bible goes so far to say we're enemies with God in our sinful state. That's a hard thing to hear, that we could actually be an enemy to God because of our sinfulness. But that's the situation that we're in. And the truth is, because of our sinful nature, we don't even know that we need to be saved, that we need salvation, that we need God. It's only by the grace of God that our eyes are open to the truth of the situation that we're in. It's only by the grace of God do we realize we need to be rescued from something. That's why some people that are offended by the gospel is because they don't know they need to be rescued. So this is part core two, that uh, we need to be rescued because there's a conflict. We have this holy God in a sinful humanity. What is God going to do? How can a holy God put up with a sinful people he's at odds with? And that's where core three comes in, where it says that Jesus alone is able to remove our sins and restore us to God. And this is the good news. The good news is that God made a way for each of us to be reconciled to God. And he did this in three basic, easy ways. The first thing is Jesus came to live a life that we couldn't live. See, Jesus had to live a perfect life. Jesus couldn't come to this earth with any debt if he's going to pay our debt. So he lived a perfect life. And then Jesus died the sin, died the death that we deserve to die. <clears throat> the Bible's clear that the wages of sin is death somebody's going to have to die for your sins. I can die for my sins and spend eternity separated from God, or Jesus can die for my sins. And that's the choice every person has to make. Who's going to die for your sins? Are you or are you going to let Jesus die for you? And the third thing that Jesus did was he conquered the enemy that we could not conquer. See, Adam and Eve were in the garden, and God said, you just have a great time. Enjoy your relationship with me. But sin entered in. Adam and Eve gave the authority that they had in the garden over to the evil one. And so the only way to get that authority back is another man had to come. And that's why Jesus had to come as a man. And that's why we know that we can be reconciled. So how did this reconciliation happen? I shared a little bit about this illustration last week. I want to share a little bit more because I think it's a powerful picture that we understand and that we can see in our minds of what Christ did for us. 
because it's so easy to forget what he's done for us. Especially the longer you've been a Christian, the longer you've been set free, you forget about it. So I want to remind us Because part of today, we're going to take communion at the end of the service. And the scripture is clear. You do it in remembrance of what Christ has done for us. You might remember a few months ago when we were in our Easter season and I talked about Passover. And how part of the Jewish tradition, this is Old Testament time. This is before Jesus on the cross. In the Old Testament, people would have to bring animal sacrifices to atone for their sins. They didn't have Jesus yet. So they had to bring sacrifices. So once a year, all the Jewish families would have to go to Jerusalem to atone for their sins at this week-long festival called Passover. And each family had to bring a spotless, a healthy, a little lamb, a lamb less than a year. They had to bring it to Jerusalem during that week. And the priest would sacrifice that lamb for the sins of your family. So either you raised a little lamb or you had to buy one when you got to Jerusalem. So you remember you have this crowded, the city's already not that big, and it's walled-in city, and you got thousands of people that come to, uh, for Passover celebration. And everybody has a lamb. Every family would have a lamb. So you can imagine it gets a little busy and a little crowded. <clears throat> it's probably pretty easy to lose your lamb. So what the father of the family would do, it's feeling we tell a nursery rhyme any minute now. <laughs> I didn't think that. I didn't hear that when I was preaching to myself. But <laughs> All right. I'm way off track. So, in order for the family not to lose that young lamb, the, 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 the dad would usually put a big name tag over that lamb as a head. And they would write on there, you know, the Sitesma family lamb. And the reason they did that is because they didn't want to lose that lamb. And they wanted to make sure when the priest sacrificed that lamb that they knew what sins that lamb was atoning for. They didn't want anybody to mistake it. So if I lost my lamb, I don't want to be like, hey, wait a minute, my sins aren't atoned for. So you put a good name tag on that lamb. And see, that was the last Passover before Jesus uh, came. And on that last Passover, Jesus went to the cross. And I talked about last week how when uh, people were crucified in the first century, that on the top of the cross, they would put a rap sheet listing all the reasons that that person was dying for. So you might go to a crucifixion. You might say, oh, yeah, that guy, he murdered someone, or that guy robbed a bank, and that's why they're being uh, crucified. And on Jesus' rap sheet, it said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. That's why he was killed on the cross. And then after a person would die on the cross, they would stamp that paper. My Greek's not good, so I got to go. They'd stamp it. Tetelestiae. I probably said that wrong. Why'd they even do that? All right, what they stamped it, meaning paid in full. And you might remember that Jesus' last words on the cross was, it is finished, what means paid in full. So while Jesus was hanging on that cross with his rap sheet above him, Jesus, God did something that the book of Colossians tells us. In Colossians 2, verse 13, it says, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, 
God made you alive in Christ. He forgave all of your sins. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. See, on that day when Jesus was on the cross, God took that name tag from the lamb and he put it on the cross. On that day, God put every single one of our sins on that cross so that we can have the confidence to know that our sins have been paid for. And then as you remember Jesus' last words were, it is finished or paid in full, that we have that confidence that our sins are on that cross. And so today, and see, that's, that's, that's the heart of the gospel, what Jesus did on the cross, that while we were dead in our sins, that God made a way for us to be saved. That even before we were saved, God made a way for us to have salvation. Before we were born, there was a way for us to be reconciled to God. And that's the heart of the gospel message. So the question is, what do I need to do to get saved? How does a person get saved? <clears throat> See, in Ephesians 2, it gives us some good insight. It says, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourself. It is a gift of God, not by works so no one can boast. So in order to understand salvation, I, I want to go through kind of a list of a little bit of what happens when a person comes to salvation. And I know sometimes you put a list out there and people think, okay, that's the prescribed order of things. I'm just talking about what commonly happens when God gives grace to a person and then they can understand who God is for the first time in their life. So I'm calling it, what are the elements of salvation? What is typical that happens when a person receives Christ for the first time in their life? See, the first thing that I talked about is that the grace of God's working in your life. As it says in the scripture, you don't even know you need salvation until God gives you that gift of grace and your eyes are open to the fact that you are a sinful person in the need of a savior. And that's the first thing that happens is God gives you the gift of grace. That suddenly your eyes are open and suddenly you can see that you have a need for forgiveness and you have a need to be reconciled to God. And so we know from scripture that God made it a gift. And that's a hard time in our culture because for some of us in culture, we have a hard time receiving something freely as a gift. We think, I need to earn it. I need to work for it. You'd feel a whole lot better about it if I could earn it. And the truth is, there's some people in our culture that you get a little lazy too and you'd think, I just kind of like it for free anyway. And because it's free, it doesn't have a whole lot of value to me, so I'll give it a ride and hey, if it doesn't work out too good, I'll doesn't mean that valuable to me. But see, God made a risk when he made it for free. But see, what God wanted every one of us to know is that salvation is always a relationship. It's never based on a bunch of works. The Old Testament, they had the works and the law. The only reason we had the law in the Old Testament was to show us what sin was so people could understand what not to do. But the law never saved you. What restores you is a relationship with Jesus. And that's what God always wanted our focus to be on, Jesus, because it's only through Jesus that we'll find the restoration. So once God gives you that gift of grace and suddenly you can recognize that you're a sinful person in the need of a Savior and you understand that 
Jesus reconciled and paid your sins on the cross, does that mean you're saved? See, for a lot of people, they think that's salvation. You just believe in God, you believe in Jesus, and done. You're good to go. You're saved. But I'm here to tell you that's not biblical faith. The Bible tells us that God gives us not just grace, but he also gives us faith. In the book of Acts, in Acts 16, we have this awesome story about Paul and Silas. And Paul and Silas are out one day explaining to people how you become saved and telling people how you get saved. And, and, and the people in the town are furious because there's a lot of fortune tellers in town and they're making money off people. And suddenly you got Paul and Silas coming into town and saying, no, 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 that's all wrong. You guys are going the wrong direction. You got to go this direction and follow Christ over here. So the local people are getting furious because they're losing money because they're losing customers as people get converted and, 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 and follow Christ. So all the merchants in that town, they get furious and they get Paul and Silas. They get them arrested. And then the text tells us that they beat Paul and Silas severely and threw them into jail. And one night when Paul and Silas were in jail, the uh, Lord sent an earthquake and suddenly all the gates opened in jail and all the chains fell off the prisoners. And suddenly the guard that was watching them was petrified because he thought these prisoners are all going to escape. And what the law was back at that time was that if the guard lost a prisoner, the guard would have to pay the penalty that those visitors were actually, the criminals were in jail for. So this guard is ready to kill himself. And suddenly Paul and Silas say, no, 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 we're all here. None of us left. None of us escaped. And the guard looks at Paul and Silas and says, Sirs, what do I need to do to get saved? A little later on, in, in another part of Scripture, in John 11, it tells us what God said to, said to Martha. It said to Martha, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? See, in this verse in John, they said to Martha, do you believe? And that's what Paul and Silas said to the, the guard when he said, what do I need to do to believe? And they said, you need to believe in Jesus. Not just you, but you and your household. In Acts 16, 31 is the scripture reference. It says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. See, the scripture is clear that we do need to believe. But what does it mean to believe? So today I want to expand a little bit on Paul's answer on what is belief and help us understand a little bit more what it means to biblically believe. Because the question is, what about following Jesus? What about submitting to Jesus? What about repentance? So I remember a conversation that Becky and I had with one of our oldest son's caregivers back several years ago back when we lived in Colorado and we, and we were talking to her about Christ and what he's done in our life and she said to us, oh, I'm a Christian. And we said, talk to us a little bit about that. She said, well, I'm a Christian but I don't think you need to go to church and I don't believe in the Bible. Well, can you be a Christian and not believe in the Bible? Can you be a Christian and not follow God? See, a lot of people in our culture would say, oh, yeah, you can. You just kind of believe, and you're good to go. Actually, we had the same conversation with another young lady not, uh, recently. Same idea. 
well, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, and I'm going to heaven, but I have no intention of ever going to church. Does that count? See, a lot of times in our culture, when we talk about belief, in our English language, belief usually means a few different things. The common belief in our culture is that we will talk about faith as a fact that we believe is true, but it doesn't influence our behavior at all. So you might say, well, I believe that eating fruits and vegetables is a very good thing to do and everybody should do it, but you never eat a fruit and vegetable. You might believe it's true, but you never follow through on action. It never, it never has any influence on your life. See, in our culture, we call that belief. You might believe in something, but there's no influence on you. Or another way we have belief is we might say, you know, I believe it's going to rain today. It might, might not. Big deal if it does, big deal if it doesn't. It's not going to influence me at all. So a lot of times in our culture when we talk about belief, we miss the part of belief has to have an influence on you. It has to change your perspective and change your motivation. See, too often our beliefs are just values or principles, but we don't even live by them. See, it's easy to live in our culture and to take some pieces of God's plan of salvation and put them together, but leave a lot of pieces out and try to fill in those pieces on what we think is a little bit more comfortable for us to make it a little bit more easier for us. I'm going to read a quote by David Platt, who I think says it very well in his book, Follow Me. Almost unknowingly, we all have a tendency to redefine Christianity according to our own taste, preferences, church traditions, and cultural norms. Slowly, subtly, we take the Jesus of the Bible and twist him into something with whom we are a little more comfortable. We dilute what he says about the cost of following him. We practically ignore what he says about materialism, and we functionally miss what he says about missions. We pick and choose what we like and we don't like from Jesus' teachings. In the end, we create a nice, non-offensive, politically correct, middle-class American Jesus who looks just like us and thinks just like us. See, that's what we have a tendency to do in America. We create our own little Jesus. The Jesus is a little easier to follow. I like how he says we created Jesus that's not so offensive. But that's not the Jesus that died on the cross. And that's the Jesus we want to follow. Is the one where our sins are. That non-offensive, politically correct, middle-class Jesus who looks just like a thinks like that ain't the Jesus that died on the cross. So when you go back to the original language of the Bible and you talk about what, what did the Bible mean then? Why did it say the word belief? Just curious what Sam was going to answer. See, in the Bible language, you had the word belief, and the root word for the word belief was the word faith. That's why you see the word faith and belief interchange so much in the Bible because they, they're very similar. The word belief includes the word faith. And so when you talk about faith or belief, 
you're talking about more than something that is simply true. You're talking about committing to something that you believe is true. Faith means that you believe in God, you believe what he has done, you believe Jesus who he said he was, but then belief is, follows up with a little bit more, and you say, now I'm going to follow that. I believe it so much I'm going to follow that, I'm going to surrender to that. See, in other words, faith has two different parts that we could refer to. See, the first part is belief. It's that faith, you believe that he exists that he is Jesus that died on the cross. You believe that we are sinful. We believe that we are separated from God. But then the second part is a part of commitment. When you believe something, now you're going to follow it. You're committed to it. You're so confident in the truth of the scripture that you're actually going to follow it. That's the part of belief that sometimes gets watered down in our culture that commitment to following, to surrendering. See, in Hebrews 11, it says, without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So remember in Ephesians that it said that um, God gives you not just the the gift of grace to open your eyes, but then he gives you the gift of faith as well because it's kind of hard to believe that this God exists just based on your evidence, but see, God will give you that gift of faith that you can believe something that seems kind of unusual to believe. See, everything that we need in salvation, God provides for us. So when you believe, you follow. So what, hap- what, what happens when a person's eyes are open to the gospel? <clears throat> they follow. So remember one of the first words out of Jesus' mouth when he started his public ministry in Matthew 4, verse 17 was, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. That's one of the first things Jesus said. Repent. Then he followed in the next verse by saying, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. Well, that was a nice little sound back there. <laughs> that worked out good. You should do that every time, CD. <laughs> yeah. Everybody's for us older people when you're in school and you, you, know, you young people don't even know what I'm talking about. <laughs> All right. They were casting a net into the lake for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. See, Jesus' words were repent and follow. One of the most powerful messages in the Bible is recorded in uh, in, um, Acts 2, where Peter's preaching to a large crowd of people that don't know Christ. He's preaching a great message. And at the end, the disciples are like, okay, now what? Now what? Now what do the people need to do? And Peter starts preaching, you need to believe in this. He's telling them you're, you're sinful because you, you believe one way and now you need to turn around and follow a different direction. So Peter's telling people you need to repent and to follow Jesus, and that's what following means. You're going in one direction, living your own life one way, and suddenly God comes in and gives you the eyes to see what's happening in your life. 
and he puts it on your heart to repent and to follow him, you're going in a whole different direction. So repentance is always a rejecting a former way of living. And see, once we, <clears throat> once we understand the message of salvation, what God does in our life, he's a, he gives us a new life in Christ. And we're going to notice that our mind is going to change, our attitudes will change, our thoughts will change. And I want to close this message by going back to the Philippian jailer in Acts 16. You go back to that story when Paul and Silas were in jail and to see what happened to the, the Philippian jailer when his eyes were open to the truth. One of the statements in the scripture that is very powerful is, is verse 25. And it says, and the prisoners were listening. I find that such an interesting statement that Paul and Silas are in jail and the scripture said the prisoners were listening. See, it's a good reminder to us that the prisoners are always listening. They're always listening to what we're saying. And that's why the assumed gospel, this silent gospel, is so much error. Because the prisoners are listening. See, when Paul and Silas were in jail, they had just been beaten severely. And so you'd expect they got to their, their, their cell You'd expect they would have just been wiped out on their bed, maybe moaning or complaining. But the scripture tells us that they were up singing and they're praising God and worshiping God and the prisoners were listening. But there's one person that wasn't listening. The text tells us that the guard was sleeping. And he was sleeping. And when the earthquake came, it shook so much that all the shackles off the prisoners fell off and all the doors to their cells opened and that actually woke the prisoner, woke the jailer up. The jailer woke up to the absolute worst nightmare in his life that on his guard the prisoners would escape and that's why he was so fearful and that's why he was going to kill himself because he didn't want to pay the penalty for his own sin. He didn't want somebody else to kill him so he thought I'll just take myself out early. And so that's what the, jar, the jailer was going to do. <clears throat> that's when Paul saw what he was going to do, and Paul stopped him. And Paul said, stop, we're all here. None of us have left. Then the text tells us that the jailer called for the lights to go on in the jail so he could actually see what really happened. Some translations say that the jailer got a torch, and he ran through and searched through the jail to make sure everybody was in their case. And I think that scripture paints a good picture of what that jailer's life was like before God gave him the gift of grace. That he was actually sleeping. That he wasn't even watching what Paul and Silas were doing after they uh, were beaten for Christ. He wasn't even listening to their message. He was sleeping. And it wasn't until the most difficult circumstance in his life that he woke up. He woke up to the hardest thing that he had ever faced and that was the prisoners were going to escape. I see that's what God does. He often uses the most difficult circumstances in our life to wake us up and to see our need for him. And when this jailer woke up and he could see 
oh no, this is what I've done, this is what I've done wrong. The only thing that he could think of was to kill himself. Until Paul and Silas said, no, we're here. And suddenly that guy had the understanding that he received the gift of grace and said, what do I need to do to be saved? The text tells us that later on, the jailer was saved. There it says he believed. But before he believed, the text tells us some interesting information about the jailer, what he did. See, the next thing the text says is that they stayed up the rest of the night. The jailer stayed up with Paul and Silas saying, tell me more about what's in this scripture. Tell me more about what's in here. And when the, so they spent the night doing their study. And when the morning came, <clears throat> the morning came, the, uh, the officials in the town said to Paul and Silas, just get out of here. We heard what happened last night. That's too crazy. We don't even want you here. Just leave. And they left. And what the jailer did was he got the rest of his family and his whole family was baptized. See, one of the first things that this man did was he shared the gospel with other people that needed to know it. He stayed up all night studying what the scripture was. He got up in the morning and he shared it with his family. And then he was baptized. And then it tells us later in the text that after he was baptized, he took Paul and Silas to his house. And the jailer became a servant. And he took care of Paul and Silas. He took care of their wounds. And he made them a meal. See, it gets confusing sometimes to uh, totally articulate clearly what happens when a person gets saved. Because it's a relationship with Jesus. I can't describe that accurately. I can't look at you and say, you're saved, you're not saved. I'm not God that I could do that. But what the scripture does, it gives us a glimpse to understand what is the behavior of a person before they were saved and after they were saved to help us understand that a little bit better. And see, there might be some of you here today that you've grown up in church, you grow up in a Christian culture, and you probably just thought, going to church, that's good enough for me. But I would ask you, have you believed? Have you believed enough that it influences your life on a daily basis? Have you believed enough that you want to submit to whatever God tells you to do, that you submit to the Bible? See, that's biblical belief. It's that not only we to believe, but now we submit and we surrender. But also I recognize, you know, we can believe and we can submit and surrender, but life is hard. And it throws curveballs at us now and then, and sometimes it discourages us. But this message, too, is a good reminder. They can always come back and say, God, I repent for how I've been living. I say, God, would you forgive me? I just want to start fresh today. See, sometimes people get conf repentance confused in the Bible. And they think, well, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. Well, then I'm forgiven. I'd never have to repent again. <clears throat> Technically, you don't. If you are a Christian, you don't ever have to repent for another sin in your life. There's another part I'm coming to, so don't, don't be writing those emails to me thinking, heretic. <clears throat> Some of you are thinking about that. See, I like the way, who was it? Charles Stanley explains this. He says there's two types of forgiveness. There's judicial, and then there's relational. 
See, judicial is what Jesus did on the cross when every one of our sins was nailed on that cross. The sins I've committed, commit, I'll commit today and the ones in the future, those are all on the cross. I'm forgiven of those. I'm going to get into heaven. But then Charles Stanley brought up the point that there's, there's relational forgiveness. See, if I'm a father and I have a son and my son sins against me, it's going to put a rift in our relationship. But I'll always be the father and he'll always be the son. There's nothing that's going to change that. But the reason that a son would repent to a father is to reconcile the relationship. And that's why repentance has to be part of a believer's life. So we let nothing interfere with our relationship with God. Yeah, I'm going to heaven. That's a done deal. But while I'm living on earth, I sure want to have a good relationship with God. I don't want anything to interfere with that. So that's why we need to live a heart of repentance. Because God wants us to have a good, abundant life on earth. And so let's not let anything interfere with that. So today as we close, we're going to... Um, I just want to close and, and remind you the, the, you can start playing, remind you of, you know, we talked about the gospel message as a, as a story. And every story has a beginning. It has a conflict. And there's a resolution. And as we come today to celebrate communion, there might be some of you here today that maybe you haven't made Jesus the Lord of your life. Maybe you just believe, but you're not a follower. And maybe you're sitting here today and you might be feeling for the very first time in your life that you want to follow Jesus. You don't just want to know a little bit about him, but you want to follow him. And I'm not going to ask anybody to come up or raise their hands. But I will lead you through a prayer. You don't become saved because of the prayer. You become saved because of what God does in your heart. You become saved because God comes in your heart and gives you that gift of grace and gives you that gift of faith that you can believe. And when God gives you the gift to not only believe it, but he gives you the ability to follow through then the commitment. So if you're feeling it the first time, sometimes we like to say pray because it helps you remember. For us, it kind of helps us solidify. Kind of like, I didn't need this wedding ring when I got married. That really didn't mean anything. But you kind of do it because it's a reminder what happened on that day. So if you're here today and you're like, hey, this I, I want to follow. I don't want to just be on the sidelines, but I want to be a follower. Then just pray along with me something like this. Dear Jesus, I thank you that you died on the cross for my sins. And I thank you that my sins are nailed to that cross. And Lord, I come to you today and I don't just want to believe. I want to follow. So Lord, I surrender to you today. Would you help me follow? In Jesus' name, amen. And so if you, if you feel that 
So if you feel for the first time in your life that, you know, I'm now a follower of Jesus, then the best thing to you do is tell somebody because you're never meant to live this Christian life on your own. Tell somebody and get plugged in, get connected. And some of you here might be here today saying, Jack, I, I am a follower, but I've been following some other things a little bit lately. Something else. But see, that's where repentance is always turning from the way you're going and saying, I'm going to go back the other way. See, as I said in the story of the jailer, every good story has a good beginning and a good conflict and a resolution. And in the jailer story, you saw I forgot what verse it was in. When we met the jailer, it says he was trembling with fear. The worst thing had happened. And by the end of the story, it says, and now the jailer was greatly rejoicing. That's where the jailer started. Trembling in fear. What is my future going to look like? But when the jailer's future was secure, he rejoiced greatly. 